Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Registry of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Marcy Butlick, a clinical psychologist doctoral student at Howard University, stepping in for Dr. Samuel Lusgarten to discuss a specialty in professional psychology, first responder psychology. Today, I'm joined by a licensed psychologist and board-certified specialist in police and public service psychology, Dr. Mark Kamina. Dr. Mark Kamina has been an incremental part of broadening the scope of police and public safety psychology throughout his career, mainly due to his leadership in first responder psychology. As an instructor at Wright Institute in Berkeley, California since 2017, he has helped start the first responder psychology program. Dr. Kamina is a co-founder, volunteer lead clinician, and a director of research for the First Responder Support Network, a residential treatment program for first responders, or the WCPR. And Dr. Kamina is a a past president of the California Psychological Association and serves as chair of the ethics committee for the psychology section of the International Association of Chief of Police. Dr. Kamina, thank you so much for being with us today and welcome to the program. My pleasure. So broadly, um, we're just going to jump into it. Police and public safety psychology um, was initially recognized in 2013 and is considered considered and associated with sort of assisting law enforcement and other public safety personnel and agencies and carrying out their missions and societal functions with effectiveness, safety, health, and conformity to laws and ethics. So according to the American Psychological Association, police and public safety psychology requires distinct knowledge of the essential functions of police and public safety organization and personnel, their working conditions um, that are unique to their respective positions and common and unusual stressors in public safety work. More specifically, first responder psychology has played an integral role in the formation and development of trauma treatment for first responders, including police officers, firefighters, correctional officers, emergency medical um, technicians, and uh, dispatch dispatchers facing challenge and challenges in dealing with and recognizing and recovering from critical instances. And your work on the Onsite Academy was the first residential program devoted to treatment for first responders. So before we get to that, my my sort of conceptualization of this specialty is that it's housed within the umbrella of police and public safety, but that's not quite the case, correct? Police and public safety is the specialty that is recognized by the American Psychological Association and the American Board of Professional Psychology. Mm-hmm. But uh, the field is much broader than simply that. So I refer to it as first responder psychology. I actually began uh, with Lewis Terman in uh, 1916, I believe, when he modified the uh, Stanford Binet. It was was called something different back then, but but he modified it into the Stanford Binet uh, IQ test, mm-hmm. and it was administered to uh, police officers candidates at the San Jose, California 
police department. And so that was the start of police and public safety. Then uh, there was uh, somebody by the name of also Lewis Thurman, mm -hmm. who administered the Army Alpha intelligence test to candidates in Boston. So police and public safety, our first responder psychology actually started with assessment. And, and it grew and, and Los Angeles Police Department was actually the first to hire a police psychologist. And that was Marty Reiser. And he hired Susan Sex Clifford as his first uh, psychological intern into police and public safety in 1976. So it's been around for a, a little while, but mostly started with assessment. Mm -hmm. And lately I found that it's much broader than just dealing with police and public safety. We, we now have an association of firefighter psychologists. Mm -hmm. We're looking into uh, dealing with other first responders as well in, in our in our history. We also started a, a, a treatment program, as you mentioned, uh, WCPR stands for the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. And we began looking at that in 1999. I then went to Massachusetts to the Onsite Academy to take a look at their program. Yeah. We ended up modeling our program after theirs. And our first treatment program began in 2001. Mm -hmm. now, we call it a retreat because if we call it a residential treatment program, nobody would come. Mm -hmm. So what we wanted to do was to have a program to be able to help first responders suffering from post-traumatic stress injury mm -hmm. and those who were highly suicidal. We began the program with uh, a group of peers, clinicians, and a chaplain looking at police and fire suicides in the Bay Area. And the question was, what are we gonna do about it? And that's when we formed this six-day residential treatment program. And the idea was to be able to help save lives. So, so far, we have been uh, doing this, as I said, for the past 20 years, and there are many organizations that we all belong to, the police psychologists, you know, public safety psychologists belong to. Uh, one is the APA uh, Division 18, Section 2, which is police and public safety. International Association of Chiefs of Police Psychology Services section, which you mentioned. And then there's a third, which was actually the original organization called the Society for Police and Criminal Psychology. And each of those has a convention each year, and it gives us an opportunity to present our research. Very interesting. So if we could jump back to um, sort of the inception of police and public safety, you were mentioning that it started with assessment. And I'm, I'm just curious, and if you can um, try and elaborate on um, how we jumped from assessment to sort of 
um, trying to develop interventions for treating trauma um, in terms of like history of, of um, the development of the field and then jumping to first responder psychology. Well, I was a police officer for the city of Berkeley in California in 1969 and 1970. Um, many may not remember that that was a tumultuous time. Mm -hmm. and, and there was a, a lot of activity going on at that time, but there was no treatment. In fact, post-traumatic stress disorder was not codified until 1980 in DSM, I think one or two. And, and right. people were suffering, but we didn't know what to do about it. And our normal coping mechanisms worked for a while until they stopped working. And, and then people were left with uh, the sequelae of the critical incident stress, different symptoms that they have. And we now have uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, divided into four different uh, uh, segments, or I guess domains. And there are 20 different symptoms associated with post-traumatic stress. And at that point, we started to identify that there might be a way of being able to treat these people who are suffering. I think, as you know, police and fire are twice as likely to kill themselves as to be killed in the line of duty. So it's a serious problem, and we needed to do something about it. And so, but it wasn't until 30 years later that we were able to take some of the things that we learned about the treatment of post-traumatic stress injury and apply it to our first responder population. So what did that sort of look like applying it to the population? Um, you did say that you, you were mentioning the treatment, uh, the retreat, um, but I'm curious if, um, there was any other intervention, say like outpatient intervention that you were using at the time to address these issues? Sure. Out, outpatient treatment had been going on for several years. Mm -hmm. And uh, our primary author of the, uh, the book that you mentioned, Counseling Cops, uh, was a police psychologist for the city of Palo Alto for 20 years. And she had been treating police officers prior to that. There wasn't much in terms of treatment of the other professions though. The fire service was really good at starting with this concept of critical incident stress debriefings. And that started back in the mid nineties. And what it was involved was that following a critical incident, uh, the group met, that is everyone who was involved in that particular incident met. And it was led by a clinician supported by peers. It was a codified structure. So it was a seven step process. And what it did was attempt to provide education and information and to help people understand that these are normal people 
experiencing abnormal events. And as a result, they're going to have symptoms that are associated with that. Now, about a third of the people don't have any symptoms at all. Mm-hmm. About a third of the people have symptoms, but they uh, resolve within a three-month period, typically. But then there's another third for which the symptoms do not resolve. And that is where we need to seek professional treatment. So it actually started many years ago with individual treatment. But as each event, national event evolved, and this is prior to 9-11, of course, uh, but there, were each, there were different critical incidents that evolved and actually started back in the 70s with the Munich Olympics. And there, there was information that was lacking about hostage negotiation. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of Los Angeles police department psychologists actually started teaching on hostage negotiation and how to resolve these, these conflicts. So there's been various aspects of it for the year, for many years, and residential treatment only came because some standard treatments weren't working. They weren't working to save people's lives. And so we wanted to try to find something different that might be able to help these folks. Right. So uh, more specifically, speaking to the retreat you developed um, with your colleagues, um, what are sort of the interventions that were included in that treatment? We found that since we have only six days to uh, work with work with people, we only treat six clients at a time. Our staff usually outnumbers the residents two to one. So the main component here is the addition of peers and a chaplain. So when you're doing individual treatment, it's usually the psychologist or therapist, one-on-one with the individual. But what we wanted was an additional umbrella to be able to give them permission to talk about their innermost secrets. And so we have peers who have had post-traumatic stress, and that's why I call it an injury, Mm -hmm. because these are people who recover. Now, of course, it's dependent upon them continuing to work their program, but they have essentially recovered from this malady. And so we want to give people hope because if you give somebody a diagnosis of post you've got PTSD, you know, it's like, well, on the one hand, that's great. You know what's going on, I'm not going crazy. On the other hand, oh, I got a diagnosis. And so that, does that mean that it's terminal? Does that mean I'm never gonna get better? And the answer is no, we have peers at the retreat who will actually demonstrate that yes, there is life after experiencing all of these different symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so they help by modeling their own experiences. So part of working with the population is self-disclosure. So when I went to graduate school, what I learned was you had to be this blank slate, 
he had to work on the transference, the counter-transference, and, and, and there was no such thing as talking about yourself. But when a, a cop walks up to you and says, hi, how are you, you know, and they ask you questions like, are you married? Do you have any kids? That's not because they want to know anything about you. It's because they're establishing a dialogue. And if you say, well, you know, I can't answer that question, you're going to turn them off. They're not going to want to talk to you. So self-disclosure was really important. And so some of our peers that are coming back have been victims of childhood sexual abuse. And they'll talk about that. And that gives the other people permission to talk about their own childhood sexual abuse. And so that adds a different component, adding the chaplain. Okay. So it's just theory. sounds like it's centered on fostering relationships. Correct. Okay. And the chaplains add a different dimension because we look at treatment as a mind, body, spirit experience. And having the chaplains there adds that additional spiritual presence. They're non-denominational and, and, and they're not eclectic actually in, in their presentation, uh, but they're there to provide guidance for those who want it. And a lot of responders have lost their faith in their higher power mm -hmm. and don't want anything to do with their church or synagogue or, you know, never want to go back. And, and having a chaplain there helps them work through those additional problems. Okay, so it's it's um, seems like a holistic approach to addressing trauma as opposed to just the critical instance, instances that these um, first responders experience. Exactly, because oftentimes <clears throat> what happens is that what they uh, come in to talk about, what their critical incident is, ends up not being what they end up talking about. Mm -hmm. And, and so what we want to do is to provide them an opportunity to discuss all of those things. Now, uh, I'm psychodynamically oriented. So I always think dynamically, okay? So I'm always relating something back to, to childhood. So I say, I can, I can really cut my clinical interview short by asking two questions. One, tell me about your narcissistic absent alcoholic parent. Mm -hmm. And tell me about your childhood sexual abuse. And I hit uh, the vast majority of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, obviously, the clinical interview is much longer than that. Uh, but in essence, that gets to the point of the kind of folks that we're seeing. And so they may come to talk about their officer-involved shooting, you know, or rolling up uh, as a firefighter on the scene of a multiple family uh, fatality but they end up talking about something that went on in their family, in their childhood. And that's when we look at what is your why? That is, why did you become a firefighter? Why did you become a dispatcher? Why did you become a paramedic? Why did you become a police officer? Right. And, and folks become so wedded to their job, they forget about what's important. And we try to show them what's important is not the job. What's important is your family. And if you disregard your family, then you end up with multiple marriages, failed relationships, you're miserable, and you have no choice but to want to end your life. Mm 
Mm. So we have a program for the significant others and spouses. We started in 2004. And, and that's a completely different program. Same format, same model. Uh, but the idea is, is that we want to be able to help people wherever they are. Right. So is there a reason, um, or like theoretically or research back, um, that got you guys to decide to only include cohorts of six for the treatment? To only include, I'm sorry? Cohorts of six, didn't you say it was six um, individuals, two to one, two staff? Oh, we, we only are licensed to be able to treat six people at a time. Okay. Uh, the model was a six-day program. We originally started treating seven. Within a six-day period of time, seven is the most that we could do. We tried eight once. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just too intensive. It just mm -hmm. didn't work. Uh, because the program is too intensive. We have several educational modules that we give. We have group uh, settings. We have individual treatment. It's a, it's a combination of a number of different things. And so, as I said, I think dynamically, but our program is mostly CVT, CPT, narrative. Uh, so we're much more of an eclectic uh, theoretical foundation. But each component of the program is a little bit different. So, for example, one day we may teach about uh, Fred Luskin's Forgive for Good, Forgiveness Project, okay? And so I call it letting go of a grudge. Culturally, it, it tends to be much more appropriate than if you talk to a first responder about forgiveness. I don't want to go there. It's like talking to them about yoga or meditation. Right. Okay. We don't say those words. <laughs> okay. We call it something else. All right. And so what we want to do is we want them to engage in these different things because we know they work. Okay. But if I'm doing CBT, okay, you know, and I'm talking about their stinking thinking, okay, I, I call it tactical thinking errors. Okay. They like those terms. Okay. Mm -hmm. They understand it. It's the same program. Okay. We, we talk about this, the same cognitive errors that they make. Okay, it's just framed a little bit different. And so that's what you want to do. You want to cater to the population that you're serving. Mm -hmm. So if we're treating a bunch of nurses, for example, then we might use different terminology for them as, as well. Have you gotten feedback from the responders that you've uh, have gone through treatment on anything that they found most helpful? We asked them. Everybody's different. Okay, mm -hmm. some people say that the EMDR was the most important thing that they did all week long. You know, some people say that it was interacting with peers, with people who've been there, done that, get it. Mm -hmm. Being able to meet up with new clients and to form a group and to form a bond, that's really important for them. So there's no one component that I think has more valence than any of the others. Mm -hmm. To me, it's a combination of all of them, of the educational pieces, the group practice. You know, We do a modified debriefing. That is, we ask them to pick the incident that's bothering them the most now and talk about the facts, the thoughts, and the reactions for that particular instance. So they go over it repeated times, You know, a really short form of prolonged exposure. But 
but they are talking about their incident over and over and over again. And so what that does is it desensitizes them. And so it helps them recover. But in terms of the outcome, you know, the one thing that I think is most gratifying is I've been told many times by people that this program saved their lives. This was their last hope. If it didn't work, they were going to go home and kill themselves. Wow. That's, um, well, yeah, I, I imagine. Um, thankfully, the, a program like this is developed in order to help um, first responders. Um, if we could switch gears a little bit, you had mentioned that um, you were working with firefighter psychologists to develop guidelines for first responder psychology. Um, can you talk a bit more about that? How is that, how is that progressing in terms of expanding the field? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> when we talk about the specialty of police and public safety, the idea was is that public safety would be a, a broader umbrella, but firefighters have different needs than police officers. So most of the research and the focus has been on police. But what we wanted to do was to move in the direction of how do we help firefighters? How do we get the firefighters to accept that psychology is part of their recovery, a part of their environment that is just as important as it is uh, knowing how to handle their equipment. And so it's important to start in the academy. And that's what we're trying to do is we try to start teaching folks in the academy about the use of psychology and how it can be helpful to them. And it's not whether you're going to get involved in a critical incident. It's what do you do about it when you are? Mm -hmm. And critical incidents are different for everybody. So I believe that it's the degree to which you personalize it that makes it significant for you. So if you're a firefighter and you're fighting this, you know, multiple story involved fire and the grandmother's out there saying, save my, my grandchildren, save my babies. And they're up on the second floor and the firefighters go in and they make it through the flames and they go to the second floor, nothing there. The building is completely involved. And later in the recovery phase, they find out that the child was in the basement wearing red Spider-Man pajamas. And this firefighter just left home with his child wearing red Spider-Man pajamas. There's no way of getting around that. That's personal. That is very serious and very difficult to handle. And so this particular firefighter is going to be more upset than somebody else who, say, doesn't have kids or or understand that that's you know, part of what they do. They can't save everybody. Right. So you're saying it, it starts, um, their understanding of the psychology of it starts in the academy where they're learning about these sort of associations between their own personal experience and what they may experience in the field? That's what we want to do. Mm -hmm. It's not currently occurring. Right. It is in some, some academies, in some places, 
uh, one of one of my uh, co-founders and, and authors of, of the book, Counseling Cops, uh, Joel Fay, teaches in the academies. And, and that's basically, you know, he's trying to spread the word about there is help available and you just have to be able to recognize it. Now, younger people are much more amenable to psychological services. The old people have a much more difficult time. Uh, but if you can start getting people engaged and start making it okay to seek treatment and eliminate that stigma that's associated with it, the word spreads. And people say, hey, I went to this shrink and I got, you know, I got help here. Or, you know, I saw this person and, and they were really helpful to me. And, you know, if you're struggling, you should, you should try it. It might, might be helpful. You know, we don't do any advertising for our treatment program. It's all word of mouth. People right. do the retreat, they come back, they say, wow, this is fabulous. You got to go. And we got a six-month wait list. But we've had a six-month wait list for years. You know, we've got, got a two-year wait list, one to two-year wait list for our SOS program for our spouses and significant others. So there's a need. We just need more people involved to be able, able to create their own programs. Mm-hmm. And we'll help you. You know, we have six satellites, so we'll we'll be more than happy to help you in different states and different parts of the country. Open up your own program, right. but trust me, there's a need out there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's let's talk a bit about that. What does training look like for first responder psychologists, and how can they sort of get involved in your satellite programs? Well, I think you're talking about from multiple pronged <laughs> approach here. So let's talk first about clinicians. Okay, so what's important about being a, a clinician, a, a first responder clinician? Uh, and the answer is you have to be culturally competent. By that, I mean, you have to be familiar with the population that you're going to be dealing with. Mm-hmm. So if you're gonna be working with firefighters, you need to know the names of the apparatus. You know, you need to, to know the names of all the different pieces of equipment. You need to know what their academies are like. You need to know about what their jobs are like. You need to know the language. They all speak in acronyms. You need to know what those mean. Mm-hmm. So going on ride-alongs is probably the first introduction that you can do. You know, if you can find a police or fire department that will allow you to go on a citizen ride-along, find out what it's all about. See what their job is like. So that's the first thing that you can do. And, and that's building this cultural competence. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that you can do is you can take courses, you know, and you can learn about how to work with, with uh, uh, this population. And so some of them are basic psychology courses that will apply to everyone. For those specific to first responders, I was opining about the lack of treatment for for, uh, clinicians because a lot of us are getting older and we're retiring out of the field and we need to replace those with new, fresh people. Mm -hmm. 
and and yet there are no training programs for them. And the reason there were no educational training programs for them was because there were no internships. And the reason there were no internships was because there were no educational programs for them. And so you could see see the dilemma. Right. So I met with Morgan Sammons and and when he was dean of uh, CSPP and and we talked about starting a program there. He left to some place called the National Register. Uh, and, and so I worked with uh, Gil Newman at the Wright Institute in Berkeley. And, and so we started the first responder psychology there. So I brought in two of my colleagues. And so, so we just started teaching courses and now it's a certificate program. And now we're developing practica sites, practicums. We're developing internships. We're, we're trying to expand the field. But for right now, um, the, there's limited availability in terms of what you can do to become familiar with the population. But if you can hook up with somebody who is a police and public safety psychology or a first responder psychologist um, and work with them around building your practice, this is the, this is the best way to learn how to do it is to actually get in there and do it. So I supervise two psych assistants, or I guess we're calling them something different now, but associates, that's what there's like mm -hmm. associates. You know. And I supervise a master's level intern. So you don't have to be a psychologist to do it. You could be a master's level person, you know, mm -hmm. but that's to provide therapy. If you want to do other things, you want to do assessment, things like that, you need to be a psychologist. But right that's a whole different domain. So what we do is we offer four different courses. I offer an introduction course. I used to have five courses. Mm -hmm. I used to offer operations and, and consultation as two separate courses, but decided there's such an overlap that I can teach it in one. Mm -hmm. So our four courses are introduction, uh, intervention, uh, the operation psych uh, consultation course, and uh, assessment. And I'm starting the assessment course uh, in April. Uh, right now we're doing intervention and, and the operations consultation courses. And then I, I did in, in the fall, the uh, introduction course that covers all four domains. Now, mm -hmm. in police and public safety, there are four domains. I listed those four, mm -hmm. but they cover 55 different proficiencies. And we cover those. In, in the courses. So the exact same thing that you need to know in order to become board certified, we're giving you an introduction to that right now so you can become familiar with, with those different proficiencies. So we give you a taste of it. Okay, so I'll have a guest lecture, for example, mm -hmm. come in and talk about hostage negotiation or crisis negotiations. I'll have somebody come in and talk about threat assessments. I bring in all these guest speakers from all over the country because we're on Zoom. You know, it just makes it easy. I used to used to fly people out, but I don't have to do that anymore. I just, you know, I just say, you know, if you're in New Jersey, come on in. You know, mm -hmm. well, you know, that's fun. You know, because we're on the West Coast, and and you know, and uh, you know, our main treatment facility is in Napa County, right. uh, but we have satellites in Oregon, Portland, uh, in Washington State, Arizona, uh, Omaha, Indianapolis. Uh, Kansas City is is uh, doing really well, and and uh, and our 
outreach coordinator is looking at doing one in, in Connecticut. So I'm, I don't know whether we can still use the term West Coast if we're in Connecticut, but, <laughs> but the idea is, is that I'm really grandiose. I, I want one of these in every community. Mm-hmm. Now, I may not see it, but that's the idea. We need this for folks. We need to have uh, uh, responders stop killing themselves. Mm-hmm. We need to have them get some help with their relationships with their family, you know, so they can do what all of us don't want to do. Okay. Wow. Okay. They run towards the gunshots. They run towards the fires. We run away, you know, but we need people like that. And so we want to keep them healthy. Uh, exactly. Um, so, you, so these satellite schools are offered um, all over the country, or the hope is to get them more widespread all over the country. Right. And, and the SOS um, and program. And it sounds like you have, um, sure, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the SOS program is only in California. And we only offer five retreats a year for them. So we're only able to treat 30 people a year. Mm-hmm. So that's a very, very small number. We need other locations to start the same kind of program. I'll help you. I'll help you start one. You know, if you, if you know some first responders and some, you know, they have some spouses and significant others that need help, you know, um, there's a way to do that. It's a way to provide help. For them. Is a, do you think a certification is required prior to interest in that work? Well, we needed a licensed psychologist. Actually, that's why they asked me to come in. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't working as a first responder at the time, but, but I was a licensed psychologist. So, so they asked me to join their group uh, when we first started. Okay, So you need somebody who's got a license uh, you know, to, to be there. But for our peers, we offer advanced peer training. So they get their initial peer training when they work with their peer support group in their departments. But then we offer advanced peer support training uh, at our retreats. And, and so we're trying to get more and more people trained to be able to do this. But it's difficult because our model is we are all volunteers and we're able to keep the cost down because of that. So when I go out to the retreat and I spend the whole week out there, I don't get paid. Okay, I sleep in a dorm-like setting with everybody else and, you know, and and do the same thing as everybody else. And and my name badge just says Mark, Mm -hmm. clinician, you know, you know, or it could be Jan. She's the chaplain or Ray. He's a he's a peer, you know, so we're all on the same level. But the idea is, is that we want to make it as easy as possible. So there's no hierarchy that we're all the same and we're all, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, in terms of certification, uh, to do the, this kind of a program, you need clinicians to be able to, to act as lead people. So it's a combination, the, the lead actually at the retreat is, is the lead peer, the lead clinicians and, and the chaplain. That's kind of the trifecta uh, that make decisions about what's going on out at the retreat. Uh, but if you want to do individual psychotherapy, uh, 
the uh, San Francisco Police Department, for example, has a, the Behavioral Science Unit. Okay, so these are people who are picked. Okay, and they say you're culturally competent to work with this population, and so when they get assigned uh, a, a police officer. Um, um, first of all, the clinician provides feedback about how well the match was, and the, the client, in turn, talks about how well the clinician was. If the if clinician isn't any good, they're not going to get any more referrals. But the advantage of something like that is we get a higher rate of pay because we're specialists in, in the field. So if you're working with insurance, for example, we have an arrangement with their insurance company that they pay us a, a, you know, a little bit more. Uh, but uh, that's for intervention. Right. Operations, consultation, a different story. There, it's, it's more psychologists who are involved in that. And as I mentioned before, if you're doing a pre-employment fitness for duty evaluation or um, uh, I'm sorry, pre-employment psychological evaluation or a fitness for duty evaluation, uh, you need to be um, a psychologist and you need to have so many years of experience and, and you need to have taken so many courses. And, and so it's, it's much more thorough. But um, it is something that I think people find very interesting because it's taking all those tests that you learned in graduate school is actually applying them, <laughs> showing you how you can actually use that information for really practical purposes. Because what we want to do is we want to have the best people. We want to be able to say that they are free from any psychological defect that would prohibit them from performing their duties. Mm -hmm. And that, that is, we can't say that they're gonna be perfect. But what we do is we follow them and we see how well their test data matches with their performance. And that continually updates one, you know, each other so that we continue to take a look at our tests. Now, to do a pre-employment, for example, you need one test of abnormal psychology. You need one test of, of normal psychology. And so it's a matter of, of providing information to those test publishers so that they can do a better job in being able to predict who's going to do a good job and who won't. Now, that's not to say there aren't going to be bad apples. You know, with 2 million first responders in the United States, it's kind of hard not to have a few bad apples, okay? But trust me, first responders dislike bad apples as much as the public does. Mm -hmm. And we want to get rid of them. And so we require certain departments to do certain things, but they don't always go follow through on their requirements. And so we need more participation from different departments from throughout the country. So we find out more about people who left for whatever reason. And, and you really don't want them to be rehired for another department. But what happens is they leave, nobody says anything. They go to another department, they get hired on there, and then they do stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. And that could have all been prevented. And mm -hmm. so that's the sad part. And some departments don't even require pre-employment psychological evaluations mm -hmm. uh, in, in different states. California, it's, it's required. Everyone in, in uh, uh, police and public safety psychology 
uh, has, uh, peace, I'm sorry, police and public safety professions as first responders has to have a pre-employment psychological evaluation, but that's not true in every state. Mm -hmm. So uh, how um, have you been working to um, create guidelines in, in, as it pertains to that or with the different police departments in the state that you're in? You know, in, in, uh, in Obama, uh, mm -hmm had a, had a uh, presidential task force on uh, uh, police uh, requirements. And, and one of the recommendations was that each department send in information about uh, their officer-involved shootings or, or, or about their uh, use of force tactics. And, and so they said, yeah, you should do that. But there was no enforcement. And so we only have a handful of the larger departments actually doing that. Most departments don't. So, so there's been task force, there have been guidelines, there have been recommendations. Uh, but follow through has been, has been really difficult. And until it's mandated, uh, you're not going to get, you know, the, the vast majority of these departments to do it. If you take a look at firefighters, for example, 80% of the firefighters in the United States are volunteers. So, so how are you going to get that information? Right. Um, and I mean, there are people who are working on it. Don't get me wrong, uh, but we need to up the ante. We need we need to, you know, we need to start playing like pros, mm -hmm. you know, and and start providing information so that we have national databases and things that we can do research on, and you know, and, and help departments. Uh, be able to pick better candidates. Right. So um, before we begin, begin to wrap up today, I'm curious to learn more about how uh, first responder psychology might advance the excellence of clinical care and what the future for the field might look like. Um, so you talked a little bit about it, but um, in terms of kind of expanding the scope of the satellite um, schools and providing certification for and training for um, to kind of get respond to the demand that's needed to serve this population. Um, what, in your opinion, what else does the future for first uh, responder psychology look like? Well, uh, as I said, I tend to be rather grandiose. So uh, what I would like to do is, is to uh, <clears throat> have people recognize that there is a need. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that as we get increased compliance, as I just mentioned, um, uh, we will get more information on what to do and starting new programs. So for example, we had some firefighters in uh, talking about arson uh, investigations. And, and, and they talked about a program that a psychologist and the arson investigator started mm -hmm. to work with juveniles who were starting fires. And so they would work with a group of kids and they weren't being malicious. They weren't, you know, they weren't people who were out there trying to cause harm. Uh, but if you can work with these groups, if you can work with these adolescents and gangs, uh, uh, that, can, that can really start helping in the community to start preventing some of the stuff that's going on. Um, uh, but uh, 
there is a need for increasing different treatment options. You know, morale is at an all-time low. You know, uh, normally, for example, uh, a police academy in San Francisco will have 50 people attending. There are two academies going on right now. Each has 15, not 50. Mm. You know, and it's because people don't want to do the job. The first responders themselves are not recommending it to anybody. Right. You know, with the new laws, it's like it really limits what you can do. And so sometimes they're doing nothing. Right. And we don't want our first responders to do that. We want them to be able to feel that they can go in and do their job. But what we need to do is to make sure that they're healthy in, in doing that. And so we need to be able to help departments recruit people. Mm-hmm. And so you ask, what can psychologists do? Well, we can develop, we can help develop programs that will help attract, make it attractive to, to, to people. There's lots of different marketing techniques uh, that, that we can use. You know, right now there's a lot of people calling in sick and COVID, you know, with, with all of the, the things that are going on with that. What happens? is that uh, there ends up being a lot of overtime that needs to be worked. And who does the overtime fall to? The rookies. Mm-hmm. We're burning them out. You know, they're not into the job five years and we're burning them out. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're working, you know, they're already working 10, 12 hour shift. And then you add another four onto it. You know, when do they sleep? So they end up being sleep deprived, you know, and then that ends up creating a whole new panoply of symptoms. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, there's 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 a lot of need out there to be able to help people understand this, and and even to work on such things like shift work. What's the optimal shift load? You know, is it four tens? Is it you know five days of eight hours? Is it you know three twelves? Yeah, what's the best way of being able to do this? So. So uh, we need help right now. So that's the future. The future is not in just one particular area. It's not just intervention. It's in, it's in all different areas. You know, and, and uh, with COVID, look at our, our, our first responders in the hospitals, nurses and docs treating COVID patients. They're first responders. Right. Okay. And, and our treatment would work just as well for them as it would work for anybody else, any firefighter or cop. You know, we've had people through our retreat who've been flight nurses and neonatal care people and, you know, people who've worked in the ER and 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 uh, uh, in operating units and things like that. We've had, we've had folks, we just haven't had enough. Right. And so it- we need to broaden our field to be able to include them. You know, in, in, if I can regress just for a second, in 2006, a group of us wrote a, a paper called the Emergency Responder Exhaustion Syndrome. And it was characterized at that time by depression, isolation, and exhaustion. And if you take a look at the acronym of that, D-I-E, that was the focus. Mm-hmm. But I'm rewriting that now. And I'm including 
anger because we've seen a lot of folks coming in who are really, really angry. And moral stress. Moral stress is becoming pervasive. Mm -hmm. It's triaging decisions. Should I save this person and not save this person? If I tried to work on this patient and it didn't work, if I had worked on the other person, would they have died? Right. These horrible decisions that people have to make. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be thinking in terms of how we can best help those people who are out there on the front line helping us. I, okay. And then uh, to touch a little bit back on um, the effects of sort of the COVID pandemic on um, first responders, especially that nursing staff and your therapeutic approach um, to the treatment um, and the retreat has that the COVID pandemic sort of changed any sort of type of way you approach treatment for those individuals? Hasn't approached our method of treatment. Mm -hmm. It's approached our, it has affected our protocols. Okay. And so we had to cancel a few retreats at the beginning of last year mm -hmm. because of COVID. Uh, we've had to limit the number of staff members that we have at a retreat, our volunteer staff, because we want to keep the numbers down. Okay. We want to be able to give people enough distance, six feet apart, you know, not living in crowded uh, dormitory type situations. So we've expanded it that way. Uh, and so we're making do. Right. We require people to show us a, a their test results before they come in. Um, there's been a lot of debate that we've had about whether we require people to be vaccinated or not. Uh, and as you probably know, a lot of first responders don't want to get vaccinated. It's like, don't tell me what to do. And it's like, which is crazy because they're being told what to do every single day, <laughs> every minute they go to work. So I, I don't quite get it, but uh, but what we're doing is we're requiring that they have a negative test before they come in. If there are any symptoms whatsoever, they get tested again at the retreat. And if there's any problems or other, we take care of it. You know, we have people who are there wiping down stuff, cleaning stuff all the time and, and, and taking care of it. Um, and that changes things because when people, our peers come to the retreat, they have been through the retreat themselves. Mm -hmm. Nine times out of 10. And so when they come back, some say they're still 50% peer and 50% client. So, so we have people who are, a, a lot of folks who are in recovery. And what happens is that this is a healing environment. And if you don't have enough people there to be able to create this healing environment, you know, some of them don't get really what they need. And right. So we're hoping that things will lighten up a little bit, but it has affected the way we do business. Mm -hmm. It doesn't affect our program. The program's the same. You know, we have standard standardized treatment of care protocol. That has not changed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then lastly, you had mentioned that um, the COVID or the pandemic has affected sort of um, the early career um, personnel and the recruits in terms of burnout. Um, and is there any other effects that you're sort of seeing and how can um, therapists or uh, psychologists sort of address those things in treatment of first responders? 
Well, again, I think it depends upon the individual. Mm-hmm. We have to treat each person as unique. So I don't know that there's a one size that fits all. But in terms of, of, uh, of burnout, for example, it's to recognize that it may not be here yet, but it's coming. And so what are the things that you can do to ameliorate that, to make it important for them to recognize that they can't do everything So they can't accept every overtime assignment. Mm -hmm. They can't keep going out and buying those big expensive toys and then expecting to work overtime to pay for them because then you don't have any time to go out and use your expensive toys. You know, it's it's difficult. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is to recognize what's really important in your life. I don't care who you are. You know, but we try to emphasize in our program, you know, when people come to the retreat, it's not a back to work program, it's a back to life program. We want people to understand that the most important thing is their family. Right. And if we don't, if we're not able to impart that, they're going to think that, that the department can't exist without them. And so they have this grandiose sense of self that leads to failure, Mm -hmm. you know, because when they leave, you know, they're gone for two weeks and they go back and they find that somebody has taken their place. Mm -hmm. So things go on. That's, you know, the organization's job is to keep the organization running. Okay. But it's the people's job to take sure, make sure that they understand that what's really important in their life. And that's why we really want to, emphasize with them what's their why why are they doing all of this why is this important for them Mm -hmm. i think it's just like you work with anybody else you're no different well thank you um dr kamina thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us um any closing remarks or final statements you have i think my Last statement really is there's a need to increase awareness. And what we want is for folks out there to join us in our fight to keep our first responders healthy. Let me know. I'll be more than happy to help. All right. Again, thank you, Dr. Camino. I'm Marcy Butlick stepping in for. Samuel Lusgard, and then this has been the Clinical Consult, the podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continued education. These views expressed in this episode do not necessarily represent the views of the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. Mm-hmm.